0: So we haven't done this in a while, so I'm going to start this morning with a culture alert. About 10 days or so ago, uh, I ran across a story that I found interesting. And then a couple of days later, I saw another story that I found interesting, and I kind of saw how these were connected, it seems to me. Um, So I'm going to share them with you, and you can decide whether I'm just an idiot or if there actually is something there that holds these together. Here's the first headline that I ran across. It said, young sacrifice belief in God on altar of Satanism. And then the subheading says, leaders of the religion claim its opportunities for people to engage in activism on issues such as gender and sexuality is appealing. So the article goes on to say that according to, and they talked to various leaders of various different sects or kinds of, you know, satanic religions. Uh, The leaders were saying that the attraction for young people It's not because of the rituals or the the cloaks or the, you know, whatever might be involved in the actual practice. It's not even the kind of taboo nature of Satan worship. Um, And it's not even because young people really believe in Satan or want to worship him. But they find this kind of group of like-minded people. Uh, The attraction comes from the fact that the practice of Satanism has no inherent moral or ethic code. Apart from, you know, whatever you want to do is fine, so long as you don't hurt anybody. That's kind of the the basic principle. So what this means is that young people are free and encouraged to choose their own life path. To choose their own identity. And as we all know, that is the most important thing in this culture right now. The ability to self-identify. Whether that's our sexuality, our personhood, our cat hood, whatever else we choose, however else we choose to identify. We're, we're free to be whoever and whatever we want. So if you can, if you want to be an activist, an anarchist, whatever you want to do, that's the appeal of Satanism. Now, of course, we know that there are always strings attached to this carefree identity fest. And those strings are at least spiritual in nature, if not more. So by, by, by choosing to worship themselves— And find acceptance and approval for their choices. They're casting their lot in with the devil. Literally. Spiritually. And ultimately, they will not get to choose their eternal destiny. It will be chosen for them. So, that was the first article, which I found, you know, not surprising, but but disturbing. Here's the next one I found. And it said that there's a rise in middle-aged white deaths of despair, and it may be fueled by loss of religion. New research paper shows. So the article talks about these deaths of despair, which includes uh, suicide, death by drug or alcohol abuse. It says it's been skyrocketing for middle-aged Americans. Now, what I found more interesting was the fact that this paper was circulated by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Not by the Pew Institute, not by Christianity Today, but by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And they found that as mainstream religious adherence began to to decline, starting in the 80s, mortality rates increased in deaths of despair. In fact, they they said there's a strong correlation between states that experience larger declines in religious participation. They also saw the largest increases in deaths of despair. So the more people detached themselves from spiritual meaning, the more inclined they were to fall into despair or hopelessness. So as I read that, made me think back to this other one and, and, and it, it starts to really make perfect sense as more and more people m- have moved away from church participation as, as they moved away from lives of faith they eventually become begin to reject the social and sexual mores based largely on Judeo-Christian ethics and they reject those mores and ethics in favor of creating their own morals and self-identity and ultimately they come to find that their lives have no significant or ultimate purpose or meaning I mean outside of ourselves if if, if, if if our whole life is based on our identity at some point we start to figure out we're not all that special we're not that great scripture says we are to find our identity in Christ Paul said it is in him we live and move and have our being and we're seeing here in oh, and we're also we you know we're created to worship I mean, specifically created to worship Christ. But we were created to worship. We're going to find something to worship. And we're seeing here in 1 Peter and in other places that following Christ does require some measure of effort on our part. The devil likes to tell us that this is just too much work. All, all of that is a lie. You don't have to do that. You can be whatever you want to be. You don't have to find your identity in Christ. You can create your own. So don't follow those rules. Just make up your own. And this doesn't this just go back to the garden did God really say? Did God really mean? So when people fall for the lie of Satan, they reject the truths of God's word. Eventually, they find themselves devoid of of meaning, and they lack hope. They're filled with despair, and they look to self-medicate in any number of areas, which is why we are called to share the love of Christ and the hope that we have with others around us. We are to be the light in their darkness. So these instructions we're going through in First Peter, they're pretty important for us to pay attention to as Christians, as exiles in this world. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's text. <coughs> Father, we're grateful, as always, for the chance to be here, to gather together as a, a people chosen by you, a people who, who willingly gather to, to worship an almighty God. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the the wisdom that it contains. I pray that as we go through today's text, Lord, that there's something here that uh, that finds a, a place in our hearts that, that calls us to re-examine, re maybe just reconfirm what we are trying to do and how we are trying to live, how we live in this life matters. So I pray that you open our, our hearts and our ears for the message you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so for the last couple chapters or so, uh, we've been talking about our conduct As Christians, our patterns of behavior, our lifestyles, and what they should look like. You know, in going back a couple chapters, in chapter 2, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're told to keep our, our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And, and then Peter goes into a discussion of what some of those areas of conduct are. But, but just prior to that, Peter, Peter warns us that we need to abstain from passions of the flesh because they will wage war against our soul. I mean, just that language alone, wage war against us. It tells us that sin is pretty antagonistic in the life of a Christian. It is not neutral. Sins are not neutral. It's working against us as believers. So we're engaged in heavy-duty spiritual warfare. And indulging in those passions, in essence, losing the spiritual battle, it will start to make us feel and then believe that our identity is based not in the Christ who died for us, but our identity is based on our sexual preference or our socioeconomic status or what kind of car we drive, what, what... animal we spiritually identify with. I mean, all kinds of things, can we can start to lose our focus on, on how we are to live. So Satan allows and encourages us to move into any and all of those directions. He, just, he doesn't care where we find our identity, so long as it's not in Christ. So long as we're not glorifying God in our conduct, feel free to do all of those things. This is such an important topic for the early church and for us today. That Peter comes back around. This is in chapter 2. Now we're going to look at chapter 4 today. He comes back around to discussing those things some more. He wants to make sure we understand what it is we are up against. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so I know we've got 11 verses to cover. We're not going to look at, at them all one verse at a time. You'll be home in time for the game. It's okay. Just bear with me. Uh, there are a few things here that are worth talking about, and I promise we'll pick up the pace. But at this point in Paul's letter, or Peter's re- letter, rather, we, we know he's already discussed uh, the death, the resurrection, the suffering of Christ many times. Here's the pattern thus far. Four times in chapter 1, he talked about resurrection, suffering, blood of Christ, raised from the dead. In chapter 2, is Jesus as the living stone, referring to resurrection. Christ suffered for you. He bore our sins on the tree. Chapter 3, he suffered. He was put to death. Resurrection. This is a recurring theme in this letter. Peter continues to point to this as something significant. Something that will help us in our thinking. He said it several times already. If we desire to live for Christ... We should expect to suffer like Christ. And then he says we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now there's some various differences of opinion on what this verse means. It's not really all that significant or reasonable, so I'm not going to spend any time on it. But I think Peter is telling us that we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to suffer as Christ suffered. And that starts with being mentally prepared. We are to have the same way of thinking. So, if you think about Jesus, he came to earth knowing that God's plan of reconciliation and redemption required him to die. He was prepared. And more than that, really, it it required him to be rejected, to be accused and abused and mocked and tortured and nailed to a cross. But he did it willingly, knowing the glory that awaited him. And the redemption that is now offered to us. But the glory that awaited him was far greater than anything man could do to him. That was part of his mental preparation. We are to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking. And if you remember back in, in the early chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, Peter told us to prepare our minds for action. He told us to set our hope on the grace that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a very active command. We are to always be on guard, be prepared, keep our mind ready, keep our hope set. So actively, arm arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Know where your hope resides, and that that is far greater than anything man can do to us in exchange. Well, then Peter moves on to the next section, which has caused some confusion. Uh, and it says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, to help make sense of this, I think we need to see the next verse for context. Maybe even go backwards a little bit, but here's where it continues. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That completes the thought. So first of all, I think we can safely say that Peter is not suggesting that once we are properly armed, once we're mentally prepared for suffering, that we will never sin again. Not only does that not find support anywhere else in Scripture, it does not find support anywhere in this room or in any other church that is meeting this morning. It's a room full of sinners. So Peter must mean something else. So he goes on to say that once we are armed and prepared uh, that prepares us to live for the rest of our time in the flesh as exiles As, as long as we're on planet earth we should be prepared but that we will or should no longer be driven by we should no longer be enticed by human passions but rather we choose we engage our minds we choose to live for the will of God. So he's not saying we won't ever sin again. What he is saying is that we are now equipped to choose not to sin. He's not saying we're going to make that choice perfectly, but we're equipped to make that choice. So we now choose to glorify God. That's our aim. We prepare ourselves, head and heart, body and soul, to live with good conduct, We are prepared to suffer for righteousness. We're prepared to follow God's will, which gives us a new set of desires. It gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of living. The gift of the Holy Spirit is now in us to to lead us into truth, to lead us away from sin. And that allows us to have control over the old passions of the flesh. So this is speaking to the, the change in our lives when we seek to follow Christ. There should be a difference. There should be a contrast between the old us and the new us. We just don't do it perfectly all the time. This leads us to the next verse. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. So Peter now gives us this list of behaviors and activities that Christians should not be engaging in, although we might have before Christ. We should not be doing these things now. We're now empowered, we're, we're equipped, equipped to, to, to choose not to do these things. And he's writing to believers. He still has to remind us. These things ought to be in your past. They shouldn't be part of your present. As followers of Christ, we ought not be living, we ought not continue to live like the Gentiles choose to live. Our lives and lifestyle should be different. And he lists some of these common areas of sin. So he talks about we should not be living in sensuality. Some older translations, like I think King James might say, licentiousness, which really sounds heavy. That's a, that's a hard sin. It's a deep, hard sin. But This essentially just means living without moral restraint. Do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. Especially, this has come to mean, uh, as it relates to sexual immorality. And we see that's rampant in our current culture so we ought not live like the culture lives our lives should be different the truth is even though we have the ability to choose not to participate we still fail we still struggle in this area there's still a significant porn issue in the culture in churches Christians are still susceptible to lust and and affairs and whatever else comes along with that we still fail but we shouldn't. I think this makes it clear that our best defense is to remain spiritually vigilant, keep our minds right, keep our hearts right, keep our will aligned with God's will. Arm ourselves with the same thinking of Christ. We may still feel the feelings, we may still be tempted, but we have a choice on how we act on them. That's where the sin lies. We recognize our ultimate mission is to glorify God, and so any weakness in our armor is a potential for error, potential for sin. He says we shouldn't be engaged in following our passions. So this is similar to, but not quite the same as sensuality. Passions here is not like, you know, oh, you have a passion for knitting or model plane building. That's not what he's talking about here. This word refers to human desires which exert strong influence on our behaviors. So something like addiction might come close to this, but not quite. Basic human desires that seek to control us. We can choose not to participate. That's what he's just told us. He talks about drunkenness. That one we're pretty clear on. He's not saying you can't have a beer with your buddies, but he's saying the desire to drink to excess can be powerful for some. Don't go there. Don't allow yourself to be drawn into it. Don't be controlled by it. Don't get to the point where you need it so that it controls you. And then it gets into orgies and, and drinking parties. These probably refer to some of those uh, pagan cults in the day that actually included orgies and feasts and, and drinking parties as part of temple worship. They were associated with with the worship of false gods in the day. Immorality of all kinds were present and encouraged. You've left that behind if you're in the body of Christ now. You can't do those things anymore. Finally, he refers to lawless idolatry. And lawless idolatry typically means what was against civil law. Which, if you think about it, he's talking about behavior that is so flagrant and so reprehensible reprehensible. It's gone far past beyond God's law, and it even breaks the common law of the land. It's just so bad. Most people say, yeah, that's just not right. It's outrageous, debauched behavior. So this kind of speaks to the fact that these behaviors, they're all based on kind of, you know, sensual immorality of all kinds, sins that appeal to our senses, sins that We think make us feel good, and there's almost a progression here on how he lays it lays these out. It's it's almost like it's a snowball of sin. They increase in size and frequency until they become idols unto themselves. They start off as pleasant diversions, maybe. I mean, the devil likes us to think it's just a just a diversion. Ah, you can do this once in a while; it's fine. And it ends up becoming behaviors. That we can't control till it finally ends in behaviors, things that we worship. They become the most important thing to us. Now what what I find striking about these is that these warnings that Peter lays out seem to be just as applicable today as they were then. It turns out that human nature on its own, left to its own devices, does not change. In spite of all the progressive talk that we like to hear, it doesn't change. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can affect real, meaningful change. Which is Peter's point. If you claim to follow Jesus, these things cannot be in your to-do list, even on the weekends. Oh, it's okay, it's just the weekend. Weekends still count for wrongdoing, as it turns out. We should be far removed from these things. And, And when we're prepared... Mentally and spiritually, we can be free from them. We can be free, maybe not from the desire or the temptation of them, but we can be free from the practice of them. Because our goal is to glorify God. It makes these things undesirable. He goes on. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is part of this ongoing argument that Peter's making. You know, we're having to look at it in sections to kind of make sense of it. But it starts with with respect to this. So this is obviously referring back to that list of things Peter just mentioned. The time has passed for engaging in these passions of the flesh. all All of those things that he went through. So, assuming we're no longer engaging in these activities... The Gentiles, by which he means unbelievers, they're surprised when we don't join in all of those things that they're doing. I mean, maybe it's because they're surprised because we used to join in, and now we don't. But they're surprised. And the languages they're, they're surprised when we don't join in this flood of debauchery. Other translations say, We don't join in the wild profligacy. Again, that sounds even heavier than debauchery. The word profligacy means rapid pouring out of unrestrained indulgence. It doesn't sound good. The, The root of the word is actually related to the word for prodigal, as in the prodigal son and his wild and loose living. The NIV translates it as the same torrent of debauchery. I mean, I think we get the picture here. Uh, what Peter's trying to say Uh, once we have engaged or once we continue to engage in this life of sinfulness and pleasure seeking it becomes almost overwhelming he describes it like a flood it sweeps us along we we think we're running headlong into into pleasures of the flesh we think we can control it but at some point the power and the pull of sin exerts influence over us it's kind of like a spiritual undertow dragging us down we keep thinking we're good swimmers, and it keeps pulling us farther out. We know that people struggle with all kinds of addictions, you know, p- porn, sex, drug, and alcohol. What was once pleasurable, perhaps, becomes uncontrollable. People are taken under by the flood of their debauchery, and misery loves company, so hey, why don't you guys join in with us? I mean, it's the weekend, just come along. Enjoy the pleasures of the flesh with us. But as Christ followers, Peter says, those days are behind us. We just we don't do those things anymore. We don't need those perceived pleasures of the flesh because we know they're not real pleasures. We come to know that joy comes from the Lord. We find peace in knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that we have this inheritance reserved for us. We don't need the fake, temporary the the pseudo joy that's found in all these other things we found the alternative and that's the real thing and when we don't join in they malign us the the pleasure seekers mock us they revile us perhaps but we heard last week we don't respond in kind right we bless them when they revile us we honor Christ in our hearts We, we share the hope that is in us We pray that they hear the truth. We pray that they respond to it, because if not, they're going to stand before the great judge one day and give an account for their behaviors, as will we all. And they will answer for their treatment of you, but more importantly, they're going to have to answer for their rejection of the Savior. So Peter adds here that judgment will come for the living and the dead. And he says, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead. Now, some have taken this to mean that, like the section we looked at last week about spirits in prison, some suggest this means that there's going to be a second chance at redemption for those who have died. I don't think that's the case. When, when Peter says that judgment will come to the living and the dead, he's saying that we're going to be judged for our life choices. We're going to be judged for our behaviors. All of us, equally, we're all going to be judged. We'll be judged for whether we have accepted salvation or not. We'll be, we'll be judged by our actions and our physical death will not save us from that ultimate judgment. We're all going to be judged. So it makes sense then when he says that this is why the gospel was preached. He means to save us from our con- from the consequences of our sin that will come in final judgment. The gospel was preached to save us from the consequences of our sin. It was preached to save us from eternal suffering. God does not want anyone to perish the gospel was preached even to those who are who may remain spiritually dead even if they don't accept the message it's preached to them and that's why to give them the opportunity for salvation even if they never come to the saving grace of the gospel God's desire is for them to accept salvation and live in the spirit according to his will but of course many most will reject it and will remain spiritually dead I think that's the meaning of Peter's writing here. It's what makes the most sense. It's, it's what is biblically consistent. There's not a second chance offered for those who have died without accepting Christ. And then Peter adds an even more sober reminder. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I think Peter surely has in mind here this pattern or, or plan of redemptive history as he understands it when he, when he says the end of all things is at hand i think he's looking at this big picture uh, and, and it's like a puzzle and all the pieces are now in place he's, he's looking at all of this and realizing that the end is imminent or it's possible it could come anytime everything's prepared all the pieces are in place Mankind has, has experienced creation, the fall, the, 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 the plight, the saga of Abraham, the rise and fall of Israel, the birth of Christ, his death and resurrection, his ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, all the way up through now, the, the, the present-day church, wherever Peter's writing here, 30, 40 days after the, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Peter was eyewitness to these last things even. So he's looking at all of history and saying, okay, every, all the pieces are in place. Jesus could come back literally any minute. It remains true today. So, believers, knowing, believing that Jesus could be here before I finish this sentence, we ought to be ready. We ought to stay ready. Which again, this is how Peter started the letter. We're to be prepared for action. He called us to be sober-minded in the first chapter. To have our hope set on the revelation, the return of Jesus Christ. So, let go of, forget, turn away from, refuse to take part in the former passions of the flesh. That's how it started. And he says it again here, be self-controlled. Don't give in to your former self-destructive passions. Be sober-minded. And sober-minded just means clear-headed. It means not not being under the control or the influence of anything that's going to alter your clarity of thought. Base it on the truth. And he adds a little warning. He says we need to do these things. We need to practice self-control. We need to stay sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. If we want our prayers to be heard, and we heard last week that, that, that having our prayers heard is a blessing in and of itself. If we want that blessing, if we want our prayers heard, then our behaviors, our conduct will reflect that desire. And then there's another short list here of oughts. Like he did the first time through, he gave us some don'ts, and then he gave us some do's. Here's a couple of do's. Here's how the believer ought to conduct his life. Keep loving one another earnestly. But notice he leads in with, above all. Above all, keep loving earnestly. And why is love important? Because it covers a multitude of sins. We all know this is true. Even in our own immediate family dynamics, we know that nobody can say things Nobody can do things that cut us quicker and deeper than our own family members, the people we love. We know how to push buttons. But our love for them allows us to overlook that eventually. Our love for them even allows us to forgive them. And the church functions like a family. So he calls us to love one another earnestly so we just don't get caught up in all these minor offenses we don't read motives into something that somebody says we don't try to interpret a bad tone into a text there's any number of ways we can take an offense with people if we love them earnestly we can overlook those things we might even read a text differently that's why I hate texting don't text me I'll take the wrong way Well, then he says we need to show hospitality without grumbling. (laughs) One of the outworkings of loving one another is spending time with one another. The church is called to break bread, fellowship together. Paul told the Romans to practice hospitality. Hebrews said that we should practice hospitality to strangers because it could be angels and we don't know it. Hospitality is a work of love. Not only should we do it, we should do it without complaining. There are weeks some of us do this well. That might be followed by a week. We might grumble a little bit. I don't want to have anybody over this week. I'm kind of sick of people after this week. I don't want to do it. But we're to practice hospitality without grumbling, and, and that's Kind of the opposite of love. If we grumble about them while giving them a meatloaf, I don't think that qualifies as loving. It's just feeding. We're to practice hospitality. Peter talks about how we're to use our gifts. And he gets into this section. I think Peter's referring both to the, those gifts which we've been given just by virtue of being born genetics, you know, upbringing. Uh, maybe we have an outgoing nature or sense of humor analytical ability, uh, you know, an affinity for numbers and math. There are some weird people out there that have that particular gift. We all have areas of natural ability, but he's also referring to those spiritual gifts we received when we become believers. 1 Corinthians, for example, provides a list of things like wisdom, extraordinary faith, healing, prophecy, discernment. There, there are three different texts in the New Testament which describes gifts of the Spirit, gifts given by the Spirit, And I don't think any of those lists are intended to be exhaustive. They're ideas, they're examples of how we have been gifted. But they do give us a pattern. Uh, They give us examples of how the Spirit can and does work in each of us. And and here, I think it's interesting, Peter kind of consolidates the various gifts into just two groups, just so it's easier to talk about. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. So it's not that one person can't have gifts in both categories. I think they can. But just to make this Convenient, Peter talks about gifts in general in these two categories. And he makes no distinction between the two kinds of gifts. He doesn't elevate one group of gifts above another group of gifts, like many, many false teachers in our day tend to do. Well, I have the gift of prophecy, and that is by far the most important gift. So the rest of you should really fall under me in how you worship that's a common teaching what Peter says is whatever your gifting is use it as the Lord intended you got to do something with it use it use it to serve one another use it for the body of Christ to build up the church as good stewards of God's varied grace because whatever your gifting happens to be it is a gift of grace so we should not boast in it we should not feel superior because of it we should just use it the way it was intended. So whoever has the gift of speaking, he says, and that's the gift of speaking is not limited to teaching or preaching. It's you know, evangelism, it's just sharing your faith with your neighbor or coworker, maybe even sharing something in, in a body life service. Whatever the situation, he just says we're to be mindful of our speech. As followers of Christ, our speech should reflect our faith. And it's not that we're necessarily speaking, quote unquote, oracles of God like the prophets of old. But that our speech is God glorifying. It is edifying. It's based on the truth of God's word. We're not God's mouthpiece, but we are his representative. So we're not promoting our own ideas, our own ideologies. What we're sharing is is God's truth. And he says, likewise, whoever has the gift of service should serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And this could mean any number of things. It's, you know, teaching children's church or being on worship team, or or making meals for other people, prayer warriors in the church. Whatever it is you're called or gifted to, he says, do it with the strength that God supplies. Meaning, just don't rely on your own strength. Don't do it for status. Don't do it for the acknowledgement of others. The truth is, both of these areas, speaking and serving, can become snares, traps for pride. We forget to lean on God's strength. We forget we're doing it for his glory because the serving itself can make us feel good. Or we we like it when other people notice. Gosh, you just do so much. Why, yes, I do. Thank you for noticing. Or we like it when people tell us the sermon was good. And we can get a little puffed up. And after a while, we can easily lose sight of why we are doing what we do, why we are doing what we are doing. We, we, we can forget that whatever we do is to be done for the glory of God so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I mean, this is not an easy thing to admit, that we got caught get caught up in all these other things, but it's true. We do it with God's strength. And we may not like it. In fact, I'm pretty sure we don't like it, but I think one of the primary ways that God keeps us humble, one of the ways he, he minimizes our pride, is to allow trials and suffering. After, you know, a couple weeks now of this nerve thing and after four kidney stones and emergency appendectomy and I just keep thinking, and Paul said, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh. And the Lord said, no, you need this. He allows trials and suffering to get us to the point where we have no option but to rely on the grace and mercy of the Lord. And I think that's why Peter ends this section with this little mini benediction here. He says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In fact, say that with me. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this, this life, the, the life we live in, this fallen sinful world, it is going to result in heartache and suffering and and mental anguish and physical failing, and it's going to affect us all. The great philosopher Jim Morrison said, no one gets out of here alive. And by signing on as a follower of Christ, we may, it's not a guarantee, but we may face additional suffering, even persecution as as a result of our faith in this lifetime. But when the end comes, when Jesus returns and when final judgment is at hand, followers of christ will find that forgiveness lasts forever and whatever we experienced here just fades away whatever anguish whatever physical ailments we face here and now are just going to fade in comparison to the joy that lasts forever that's the hope that we cling to that's our solid rock we're all going to face difficulty we're going to face things that challenge us deeply but it won't last forever You know, I understand more and more now when you talk to those senior saints, you know, those people who are close to dying, and they say, I'm ready. Let's end this. Take me home. It's going to be so much better. And that's what guides our behaviors. That's what should guide our choices and our lifestyle, that through us, God will be glorified. And so many people need to hear this. First, they need to see it in us, then they need to hear it from us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are again grateful for the chance to gather. We are so grateful for this word that you've left for us, uh, for these inspired, Holy Spirit inspired words that came through Peter in this text. Lord, and we find that it's just as meaningful, just as applicable today as it was in the first century when it was written. Sin continues to reign on this life, in this life, but we can find grace and we can find hope in Jesus Christ our Saviour. So I pray that you continue to build us up, to encourage us, to empower us, to choose not to do the things we ought not do, and give us courage and boldness to do the things we are called to do, to give us to do us to do the things we ought to do. We thank you for how all of this has been planned and, and orchestrated and set in motion before the world was even created. It's amazing for us to think about how c- that. In itself, is humbling that this is all going according to your plan. So help us be uh, the the believers that you call us to be. Help us play the role that you've you've laid out for each of us in our work circles with our friends and family. Uh, Lord, help us be good representatives of the gospel of grace. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.